Good morning, Calvary Bible Church. Uh, welcome to Adult Sunday School. And uh, today um, marks our first lesson uh, in our new series on church history. Uh, this is our new uh, topic, and we kind of, just so you know, if you're not familiar with our uh, philosophy and what we teach during adult Sunday school, uh, generally we have a rotation of uh, subjects, including Bible survey, systematic theology, Christian living, and uh, other things sometimes as well. Uh, but when it is my turn, I get the privilege of teaching uh, church history. Um, I have had the opportunity and the privilege to do that probably for the last 10 years at Calvary, and it's been a joy uh, to teach uh, this topic. I love it. I, I, I'm passionate about it, and I'm grateful to my fellow elders for giving me the opportunity uh, to teach to you, to you guys again. Uh, I do want to uh, um, offer you greetings on behalf of my family, uh, all of my family, Emily, Noah, Caleb, Hudson, and Annie, and myself. We all dearly miss you, our brothers and sisters in the Lord here at Calvary. So we send you greetings, and we hope God's richest blessings for each of you as you follow the commands of our local government and shelter in place. Uh, and on behalf of the elders, I also want to say uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, thank you for desiring uh, to learn about the Lord and what he's been doing throughout history. And we praise the Lord for you and how you love this body of believers. So thank you on behalf of the elders here at Calvary. Uh, I would also say, Lord willing, that soon we'll be able to meet again, and that's our desire. Uh, but we praise the Lord for his goodness in giving us just this technology in order to uh, meet in some ways virtually, so uh, we see God's providence in this, we trust Him, and we uh, are just praying that soon we can gather again. So this is a, a, a topic that is one that we uh, can come to pretty regularly in studying church history, and we, um, you might ask yourself, Matt, why do we need to study church history? Why is that important? And I would hazard to guess that many of you here at Calvary already are pretty passionate about that, but not all of you. Um, and why is this a study worthy of us looking at? And I, I would offer you a couple um, answers to that. I'm going to point you to uh, my references. Uh, if, if I think on Friday evening you received an email which included all the packet and information you would need, both for the Sunday school hour and the church hour, and so I would point you, first of all, uh, to one of the links there is the document for the study guide for today's lesson. So you can look at that. On the last page of that, there's three total pages. There's a list of references that I'm using for this week's study and what we're going to talk about. And a couple of those are just websites by um, the online blogger Tim Challies. And this one I've talked through a couple times in the past about why we study church history and the one blog that he has is Seven Reasons to Study the Church's Past. I would encourage you to look at that, but I'm going to highlight it for you right now. He gives us in his blog post from almost 10, 12 years ago, uh, seven reasons why we should study uh, church history. And the first one he tells us is, he says to us, is that God tells us to. Um, the Bible continually exhorts believers to search out and to remember the past. In the Old Testament, there's ceremony after ceremony and festival after festival that God asked his people to do and perform and to honor in order to remember the great things that God has done through his people. Um, the second reason that Chalice gives us is to help us understand today. Uh, it's very humbling to look back in the history of the church and to see how God has worked. And it helps us understand the blessings that many of our spiritual ancestors um, have enjoyed in the past, and also the blessings that we enjoy today that they weren't always theirs. So we can understand today better because of our study of church history. We can also understand tomorrow better. Uh, we can look at the ways of church history and the way that God has uh, protected and persevered His church and providentially cared for the church, and we can predict and we can know, and we can stand on the promises of God um, as we see those patterns of the previous days, so we can hope in the future as we understand how God has worked through history. 
Uh, fourthly, we get to understand God's providence. And I think you guys would all agree with me right now that we are um, trusting the Lord's providence even today as we consider the fact that we are not meeting together. But we trust the Lord that this is ultimately for our good and to help us to become more mature believers in Jesus. So we understand God's providence, that He uses suffering, difficulty, trial um, to grow us, and this should propel us to, ha- to have a greater love and appreciation for God and even give us greater confidence in His promises for us. And then a few more. Uh, fifthly is to understand error. So we, just, we study church history in order that we can understand error. Oftentimes, some of the most flagrant heresies are reoccurring through the history of the church. And it is helpful to see how previous generations of Christians have responded to those things. Uh, there's, not, um, there's nothing new under the sun, according to Ecclesiastes, and that is the same with heresies within the church. Uh, we also get the opportunity to understand people. Uh, we get the opportunity to see people um, live lives that um, are um, set apart for God's work. We also get to see those people are imperfect. Uh, you think about uh, people like Martin Luther and George Whitfield. There's some pretty major issues in their life looking back on that we can uh, look back and say, wow, I wish they weren't that way. But it reminds us of their humanity and the fact that they're not perfect people. And the last thing I think that and I, this really hits home for me right now is the importance of endurance. So when we look at the history of the church, we have the example of faithful saints that have endured to the end and have received ultimately their crown of glory and the future hope that they had in heaven. So we see men and women persevering throughout the history of the church, and we're strengthened by that, and that gives us hope, great hope. So those are reasons that Chalice gives us. Um, I, I linked another article on the study guide uh, from Chalice's about another reason to study church history, and it's really a, it's a, it's a great article. I would encourage you to look at that one as well. Um, but what it does talk about, I'll just point this out, is all of church history and everything that happens in the history of the church is God working uh, to bring about His purposes for humanity, and we are recipients of that. That is our history. So uh, those of us that are and I think most of us are Americans, we really embrace American history, but the joy of the church is we can embrace all of God's plan uh, for history and how he's built his church. So that is really our history, and those are our spiritual fathers and ancestors. So that's an introduction as to why we're doing that. Um, I think we can find some hope and encouragement, even in the things that we talk about today, and we will do that throughout the next few weeks as we talk about uh, Christianity in America. Uh, we're going to be focusing on uh, the year 1600 to about 1750, maybe up until the revol- revolution. Uh, so that's kind of the time frame of where we are. And a little bit before that today, we'll talk about uh, the 1500s for the, for, the, for the beginning part of our time. But first, I wanted to, uh, now that we've gotten the introduction out of the way, let's, let's go to the Lord's, to God's Word and look at Joshua 4. Go ahead and take your Bibles I know they're sitting in your laps, and you're probably having a nice warm cup of coffee and uh, having a very nice, comfortable day at home. And uh, let's read Joshua 4. What's happening here in Joshua 4 is God is commanding the Israelites to do something in order to remember. He's telling them how they should remember and why they should remember. So I'm going to read the whole chapter for us, and it'll be glorious. So follow along with me in Joshua chapter 4. Israel has just crossed the Jordan River. Joshua chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and then bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called, and the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. 
and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and they laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until evening, until everything was finished, that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste, and when the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priest passed before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over, armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for the war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let's pray. God, we praise you, or we praise you for how you commanded your people here in Joshua uh, to remember. Lord, we praise you that you caused them to commemorate your mighty deeds of rescuing, rescuing your people um, with physical and visible memorials. Lord, we do um, need your help as a people, Lord, to remember. Lord, I confess, Lord, I often forget Lord, I confess that I am not faithful to remember. But praise be to you, Lord, that in your everlasting word, you give us um, hope, you give us um, stones of memorial. Lord, the ultimate memorial stone that I can think of is the changed life that you've done for me and so many here at Calvary. Lord, I praise you for the gospel. I praise you that, um, that the gospel has changed um, my life. Lord, I pray, praise you that, um, that when I did not love you, you loved me and drew me out of the miry pit and saved me. Lord, I thank you for that reality in um, the members at Calvary Bible Church. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to um, look back and remember the great deeds you've done in our personal life. Lord, uh, I also praise you for the opportunity um, to look back on these monumental memorial stones uh, that you've done in building your church throughout all of history. So, Lord, as we look at just the, uh, the beginning of the church in America during the colonial period, 
Uh, Lord, I pray that we would see your hand. Lord, I pray we would see you as sovereign. Pray, Lord, that we would see you as the one building um, your church. So, Lord, as uh, Pastor Dan reminds us, Lord, we acknowledge and we understand that the main thing you're doing is building your church, whether that is adding to the number who are saved or growing in sanctification, those that are already saved. Lord, uh, we pray that you would help us to see how you've done that in the past as well. So, Lord, pray that our understanding of what you've done in the past would propel us and give us greater faith to see what you've done or will do in the future. So, Lord, I even pray for today as we are not physically gathered together. Lord, I pray that in weeks or perhaps months and years to come, we can look back and say, oh, I remember what God did during that time. So, Lord, I pray you would shake this world. Lord, you um, are drawing people to yourself. Lord, I pray you would help us be faithful as ambassadors for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, all that is for introduction. And um, so today, what I want to do is kind of give you um, uh, uh, the beginnings of how um, the church comes to North America. Um, we're, we're dealing with a time period of a, a major time of exploration, and settlements are occurring throughout the New World, what we would refer to as North and South America. And you all know that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Uh, all the homeschool moms said yes, and they probably can teach this lesson a lot better than me in some of these respects, especially if you've been through these things several times. Uh, but Columbus, in 1492, he is sent out on an exploration uh, by the uh, Spanish king and queen, and he discovers um, the new world for the Europeans. Um, it's important to know that Spain is a country run by Catholics, and they are <clears throat> devoted to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, remember, this is 1492. We're still 25 years until Luther nails his 95 theses on the door at the church in Wittenberg. So 25 years before uh, the Reformation really explodes on the scene. Uh, but Columbus, he not only sailed this, just this, this might sound odd to you, he not only sailed uh, the ocean blue in 1492, but he also did in 1493, 1994, or 1494, and thereafter several other times. And he wrote extensive journals, and his desire was not just to find a uh, safer or quicker passage to India, which was his primary goal the first time, but he also, in his subsequent journeys, he wanted to um, share the Roman Catholic faith with the locals, with the native peoples of America after he encountered them. Um, so, ultimately, that was one desire he had. Um, there's, there's so much information out there, obviously, on uh, Columbus and uh, what Spain was doing in the New World at the time. I'm not going to get into all that. However, uh, at the time after Columbus discovers America for, for Europeans, I will, I will qualify by saying that, uh, the Pope actually splits the territories of North and South America between two countries, and that's Portugal and Spain. Spain's the more dominant power. They get most of the territory. Portugal, Portugal gets Brazil. Uh, you guys might be familiar with the fact that in Brazil they actually speak Portuguese, and that's why, because uh, they're the ones that colonized uh, Brazil. Uh, Spain gets most of the rest of South America. They get Central America, up into Mexico, up into Texas, New Mexico, and then the whole, wait a minute, western part of North America. And Spain desires to um, explore and conquer these countries. Um, they are one of the more dominant nations at the time in Europe. They're obsessed with exploration. They want to grow uh, their country's wealth and prestige, and they want to enhance their trade routes as well. Um, oftentimes, people compare uh, the exploration by Spain and by England in two different categories. 
Some will say that the Spanish sought gold more than God, and the English sought God more than gold. And that seems to be a pretty too neat of a thing to say, too easy to say, and most historians would say there's a little bit of mix in each of those things. Uh, But there's no question the Spanish uh, did uh, recover most of the gold, and most they uh, conquered many of the native uh, uh, tribes that were there who had a lot of wealth, primarily in gold. And they had the greatest navy, so the capability of doing that. But they also, everywhere they went, they also went had Roman Catholic missionaries and priests go along with them. However, they weren't very successful. But you know, as if you've been through the Southwest, there's a lot of missions and stuff that were established in. Uh, the southwest of the United States and Mexico as well from that time period. Um, um, One thing that's important to realize is Spain and then France, which we'll get to in a second, um, also settles in the New World. Uh, France settles in the New World up in Canada, primarily in Quebec. Both of those are large Roman Catholic countries. Um, As the 1600s dawn, and they really are trying to colonize these areas, um, the... Roman Catholic Church is looking to expand. They've lost a lot of people because of what happens in the 1500s due to the Reformation. So additionally, besides just um, Spain, France also begins uh, to found colonies in the New World. In 1608, Quebec is founded in the northeastern part of uh, North America in present-day Canada. In the middle of the century, they send explorers out from that region to to survey towards towards the west in Canada and then down into the United States along along the Mississippi River Valley. So their goal was, yes, to seek out new lands, to seek out opportunities for further trade, uh, but they also wanted to expand the Roman Catholic religion. So they sent out Franciscan and Jesuit priests as missionaries, along the Mississippi River um, to hope, in the hopes of converting many of the natives at the time. Now, it's really complicated if you know your Reformation history. One of the primary things um, that the Reformation does is it puts the Bible in the language of the people. And uh, the Roman Catholic Church is absolutely opposed to the Bible being in the language of the people. And so when they go to talk uh, and try to convert to these people, even if they were converted, they would not be able to give them a Bible except for one that was in Latin, which was what they approved. It's hard enough to communicate with native people, and then you throw in an ancient dead language as well, well, and that's pretty difficult. So they did not see much success in that. The first English colony, so we have, these are kind of the three Western European dominant powers, Spain, France, and England. Uh, the first English settlement was at Jamestown, and that's named, that happened in 1607, and it was named after King James I, who was the king, became king in England in 1603. Uh, previous to uh, that settlement, there was attempted settlements, uh, primarily at, in uh, the colony of Roanoke by Sir Walter Raleigh. Um, however, after he founded that colony, he went back a couple years later, and all the people were gone, um, and they called that region of where uh, these settlements were, Virginia, because it was named after, at the time, in the late 1500s, uh, Queen Elizabeth, who is the, uh, uh, the Queen of England for a long period of time, and is named Virginia because she never married. So the Church of England was the established church of the settlement of Jamestown, yet its primary motive for being established was not... Uh, to establish religion in the New World. Uh, However, the the primary reason it was established uh, was to uh, give more opportunity for trade, to build colonies in the New World in order to enhance England's wealth. However, uh, upon the arrival of the pastor who went there initially, he did hold a communion service. Uh, In 1610, a new governor arrived and uh, took to the scene and thought that they needed to change some things up. And his first order of business was to hold a public worship service, and he called for sacrifice and service among the colonists. So religion plays, and Christianity, as it was in the Church of England at the time, plays an important role in uh, the city of Jamestown. Uh, However, that will pale in comparison to what happens in New England, which is what we'll get to 
start to get to today. Um, um, even in, in Jamestown, um, some of the faithful Anglicans desire to even see the gospel go to the Native Americans. And uh, John Rolfe, uh, you might be familiar with his name. He's the one that married Pocahontas, and it is his desire to see her come to genuine faith in Christ. Um, my family and I, uh, for spring break, we spent uh, a portion of a week in Washington, D.C., and there's these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful paintings in uh, the Capitol Rotunda, and they depict um, America's history and really the founding of America. And you, you can think of some of those things involving George Washington, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. But a couple things they had that I've already referenced. One was a gigantic painting. They're, these are beautiful. And, and then the scene of the Capitol makes it even more beautiful. But one was uh, Columbus arriving in America. Okay, pretty, pretty major event. Uh, the second one, which was surprising to me, was the baptism of Pocahontas into the Church of England. So in some ways, our secular society still honors um, our religious heritage. Uh, the third one, which is no surprise either, is uh, the pilgrims landing on uh, Plymouth Rock. Um, so just those were beautiful. I would, I would suggest that you just go and type in and Google capital uh, rotunda paintings and look at those. If we were... Uh, in the fellowship hall having this meeting, I would have those on the big screen for you, but we're not. Um, so that's, that's the founding of Virginia. So at this point, Jamestown and Virginia, this is uh, England's entry into the New World. So next, let's turn to New England. In order to really understand New England, though, we have to do some review. Um, I know some of you guys are really familiar with this material already. I've taught before through it before, but what we really need to understand is in the 1500s and the 1600s, what is the Church of England like? What other um, parties are at play? What's going on there? Who's in charge? Who's the king? Uh, who is the church Roman Catholic? Is the church um, separate from the Roman Catholic Church? So I think it's important for us to know these things so we know about the dynamics that are going on in England um, and then know the dynamics that are going on in the future in New England. Um, so the Church of England, we need to remember, up until the early part of the 1500s, the Church of England is Roman Catholic. Uh, the King of England in the early part of the 1500s, he actually reigns from 1509 to 1547, is Henry VIII. And I know you guys probably have ideas of what Henry VIII did, and we'll talk about some of that. Uh, but he is a staunch defender of Roman Catholicism. Um, and he... He even is a staunch defender in opposition to Luther. So as Luther is coming on the scene in 1517, and his Reformation is really ramping up, and his materials are being printed, and people are getting those all the way in England within a month of the time that he writes his uh, 95 Theses in 1517, and all sorts of pamphlets are exploding of, uh, as uh, Luther is opposing uh, many of the key doctrines of the Catholic Church. Um, Henry VIII actually writes against Luther in support of the Pope. However, Henry has one major issue in his life, and he's, he is married. His first marriage is to Catherine of Aragon, who is from Spain. And as we already talked about, Spain is a Roman Catholic country. And Catherine and Henry are unable to conceive a child, especially a male child, and that's really what Henry wants. He wants to assure um, him, his family line to go forward after him. It's very important to him. And he ends up believing it's Catherine's fault. So he pursues in the, late, or the, in 15, in the 1530s a divorce of um, Catherine. Um, however, the Pope does not allow that. Now, for political reasons, there could have been times that the Pope might have actually allowed that. Um, but the main political thing he was concerned about is upsetting Roman Catholic Spain. So he does not allow uh, Henry to divorce his wife. It would have been breaking church law. Um, so Henry, instead of, um, instead of divorcing his wife and submitting to the, 
the church, actually decides to divorce he and his entire country from the Roman Catholic Church. And he does that. And in 1533, he appoints a new leader of the Church of England, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time is Thomas Cranmer, appoints or allows Henry to divorce Catherine. Um, and then in 1534, to top it off, not only is he rid, rid England of the church, the Roman Catholic Church, he appoints himself, through the act of supremacy, the head of the Church of England. So now he's the head of the church and the head of the state. Uh, you're probably familiar with the fact that Henry ultimately has six wives. Uh, partly that's in his pursuit to have a male heir. Partly that he just feels like he can do that. Um, and you might be familiar with the term, how you can remember what the ultimate fate was for each of those wives. It's The first one was divorced, second one beheaded, then the next one died, the next one was divorced, the next one was beheaded, and the last one survived. So you have this catchy tune, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. If you want to know what the ultimate fate was of Henry's wives. So Henry has broken away from the church, so it seems like maybe Henry... Maybe he'll, be, uh, maybe he'll desire to do some things like Luther is doing or Zwingli is doing related to the Reformation. Yet he does not immediately embrace the ideas of the Reformation for a few years. Uh, in his uh, reign in 1536, he actually executes William Tyndale, who is the translator of the New Testament completely, and most a lot of the Old Testament into English, and he found his... Minions found Tyndale overseas on the continent and had him executed in 1536 for translating the Bible into English and for smuggling those English-translated Bibles back to the continent. However, there is much Protestant zeal um, and reforming zeal that's going on in England at the time, and the key person that's involved in that is Thomas Cranmer, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, you see, Henry had to appoint somebody that opposed the Catholic Church as the head of his church, and that was Cranmer. Um, let's see. But eventually, Henry does embrace some of these things, and he even allows for the Bible to be translated into English a couple years later. Um, and he dies, though, in 1547. Some reforms are happening. The Church of England is adopting some uh, Protestant doctrine, but Henry dies in 1547, and his young, he actually has a son eventually by his wife, Jane Seymour, who's his third wife, and he becomes king at nine years old, and he reigns from 1547 to 1553. Jane Seymour's family is ultimately Protestant. They love the Reformation. So under uh, Edward's reign, uh, Thomas Cranmer remains as the Archbishop of Canterbury, he ramps up Protestant reform of the Church of England. He produces the Book of Common Prayer, which is just the liturgy of the Church of England, and it's reformed in its doctrine, uh, or it's, it's Protestant, I'll say. It's too early to call it reformed. Um, he writes a book of homilies for the priest to preach, knowing that preaching is very important, and uh, he writes those in order to train the, the priests of the time that were of the Church of England. Uh, he writes the summary doctrinal statement of the Church of England. It's called the 42 Articles, and that's Protestant in nature. ends up becoming the 39 Articles. Um, the priests are no longer called priests. They're called pastors. Uh, preaching is the priority, and the pastors now can marry, unlike uh, the Roman Catholic priests who were required to remain celibate and not be married. Um, instead of receiving priestly garments, pastors received Bibles. The images of saints were removed from the churches. So these Protestant changes were a combination of both Lutheran and early Reformed practices. However, this does not last long. I told you that Edward only reigned until 1553, and he's really, he was a child king, and it was really his uncle, um, one of his mother's um, uncles, actually, that was helping lead that as the Lord Protectorate. But he dies because he was prone to illness, and he succumbed to his illnesses as a young person, as a teenager. So then, that brings the next person on the scene who's going to be 
uh, the queen. So, it, so you can see this. Henry VIII is resistant to some Protestant things, but then he's allowing some things. Uh, Edward, it's like full-on Reformation at this point. Uh, however, Edward dies young. So really, the fate of Christianity, um, the, the, uh, the fate of Christianity in England, and how, what path are they going to be? Are they going to be Roman Catholic? Are they going to be Protestant? Is tied to who is the king or the queen. So whoever is in charge. So next, after Edward dies, Mary ascends to the throne. Mary um, reigns from 1553 to 1558. She is the daughter of Henry and then Catherine, his first wife. So, so if Catherine was Spanish and she's related to all those rulers in Spain, what, uh, what denomination or what religion is she? She's Roman Catholic. Um, so this, this is where we get the nickname Bloody Mary. So Bloody Mary ascends to the throne, and she puts a halt to all the Protestant uh, reforms that are happening in England at the time. Um, she even, not only does she put a halt to those, she even begins persecuting uh, Protestants, especially those uh, Protestant pastors that were full of reforming zeal and had learned how to preach faithful sermons according to the English Bible. Um, and under the reign of Mary, uh, 300 um, Protestants, pastors for the most part, were publicly killed. Publicly killed by like being burnt at the stake. Um, this includes Thomas Cranmer, also um, Hugh Latimer, Latimer, excuse me, Nicholas Ridley, those guys. Uh, if you don't know their story about them being burnt at the stake, it's worth you reading. And uh, you'll get a new perspective on a love of the Lord in the midst of persecution and suffering. Um, but Mary not only persecutes them, she removes all the reforms that Cranmer had made. And many Protestants, though, were able to leave England. And when they left England... Um, they fled somewhere where they could be in safekeeping, and most of them went to Calvin's Geneva. So John Calvin is the reformer of the city of Geneva, and that's a, in Switzerland, and um, he made a safety and a refuge for these persecuted uh, people that were leaving England. So at that time, these people uh, are going, they're fleeing for their safety, for their lives, Yet they end up uh, being indoctrinated uh, to Calvin's thought and his view of life. And so these people um, become um, really saturated with good biblical teaching, saturated in the Word of God and who God is and what God is doing in salvation. Um, so that's, that's an amazing providence that God allowed that to happen through His church in the midst of persecution. It's important to realize that God is working in the midst of persecution, suffering. He's working today in the midst of the fact that we are not gathered together. Oh, oh souls, brothers and sisters, do not be downcast. God is at work, and we praise Him for that. Um, and then Mary, by God's providence as well, dies in 1558. She dies of stomach cancer, a, rel a relatively young death for her, and she uh, does not leave an heir either. So we're seeing a theme here. These two people don't leave heirs. And the new person that ascends to the throne is Elizabeth I. So this is Queen Elizabeth. She reigns from 1558 to 1603. And she's the daughter of Henry and Henry's second wife, who was beheaded, uh, Anne Boleyn. And Elizabeth is really, she could, she's not convicted to certain Protestant leanings, nor is she convicted about certain things in the Roman Catholic Church. So she puts forward what we would refer to historically as the Via Medea. So it's the middle way. However, it probably is, if you wanted to just uh, consider it, more Protestant than Catholic. So I would like to call it the Protestant Via Medea. However, um, there's still some Roman Catholic tendencies um, that she allows to remain in the Catholic Church. Um, just like Henry, uh, she uh, initiates the Act of Supremacy, so she's also uh, the head of the Church of England and the 
uh, ruling monarch. Uh, she institutes a new book of common prayer. Uh, she removes some of Cranmer's previous language that was pretty strong against the Pope. Um, she institutes the Lord's Supper. It's not the Mass, but it's a Lord's Supper that's kind of a middle way between Luther's teaching and Calvin's teaching. Um, there's a lot of information here I don't want to bog us down with, so I'm sorry if I'm just skipping over things like that. You might want to know, what's the difference between those two things? Look it up. Um, she did require everyone in her kingdom to attend the church. Um, she did allow Catholics to remain in the country, and she did not require them to partake of the Lord's Supper uh, because she knew she did not want to create what she would say windows into men's souls. So she embraced the idea of the conscience. Um, she primarily was concerned about the political situation more than the religious. So her religious reforms, or the things that she did within the Church of England, didn't go far enough. So now there's a group of people that are really passionate about God's Word and really passionate about following worship according to how God says it, and that is the group that is really ultimately responsible for the founding of the New England colony. You're probably thinking, are we ever going to get back to New England, Matt? Well, we're about to get there. And this group is called the Puritans. So the Puritans existed and started coming on uh, the stage, I guess, of history in the 1500s and into the 1600s, and they wanted to purify the Church of England. They wanted to remove any last vestiges of the Roman Catholic Church from the worship of uh, the Church of England. They wanted everything in worship to be as described in Scripture. They believed in what's called the regulative principle. They were influenced by Calvin and also by John Knox, who had instituted a lot of reforms in the neighboring Scotland in the 1500s as well. Uh, in your handout, I gave you a definition of uh, just Puritanism and who the Puritans are. I really enjoy this. And they wrote it a lot better than me, so I'm just going to read it for you. It's, it's pretty long, but look at your handout so you can see it. So the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is the one that's official in Britain. Now, you young people that are watching this that aren't always in an adult Sunday school, do you guys even know what encyclopedias are? They're these big uh, collections of books. They're divided by alphabet, and uh, they just have articles about topics. Really, really spent a lot of my time just reading through encyclopedias as a kid, um, now, I will confess, though, I found this definition online, not in an encyclopedia. So just so you know that. Um, so the Encyclopedia Britannica says this about the Puritans and, the, and Puritanism. So it says, It is a religious reform movement in the late 1600s and 17th centuries that sought to purify the Church of England of remnants of Roman Catholic popery. So popery is just the things that Roman Catholics do because the Pope says to do it. That's what popery is. Uh, that the Puritans claimed had been... So this popery had been retained after the religious settlement reached early in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Remember, Elizabeth's not one to rock the boat. She wants to have these political alliances. Puritans became noted in the 17th century for a spirit of moral and religious earnestness that... Earnestness that informed their whole way of life, and they sought through church reform to make their lifestyle the pattern for the whole nation. So they not only wanted to reform the church, but they wanted to reform the church in order for it to impact the nation. So they, were, they emphasized the value of the family, the church, and then the nation, or the commonwealth, the community that they lived in. Their efforts to transform the nation contributed both to civil war think Oliver Cromwell, 1650, in England, and then to the founding of colonies in America as working models of the Puritan way of life. At that point, think Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, start thinking, if you want to think of it in a negative way, start thinking of the scarlet letter. Um, but in a positive way, think of the Puritan work ethic or the Puritan love of God's Word. Um, so that's a more positive spin than 19th century literature does. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote a book, and when I taught on the Puritans, I think this time last year, um, I used his book. It's called A Quest for Godliness. It's in your references if you're interested. This is what he says about Puritanism. Puritanism was, at heart, a spiritual movement 
passionately concerned with God and godliness. He goes on, it was essentially a movement for church reform, pastoral renewal, and evangelism, and spiritual revival. In addition, indeed, as a direct expression of its zeal for God's honor, it was world, a worldview, a total Christian philosophy. So this, all of our Christianity impacts, all, our Christianity and our love for the Lord and our faith in the Lord impacts everything in our life, all to the glory of God. Um, so we'll talk, in the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about a couple more kings. King James comes onto the throne in the early 1600s, and he's followed by his son, King Charles I, uh, especially King James. The Puritans, like they were hoping with Elizabeth, uh, they thought they would get uh, more concessions as far as worship, and that didn't happen with King James. We'll, we'll go over that next week. I feel like my time is running out, so I need to, I need to uh, speed through some of this, but we can revisit that next week. So within England, though, so you kind of have the Church of England, and you have these Puritans. Now, the Puritans don't desire to break away from the, Roman, or from the Church of England. They're trying to work within the Church of England in order to purify it, to make it more like uh, what the Bible says worship should look like and what the Bible says the preaching and the doctrine should look like. Um, so that's, they're still working within the role of the, of, the, of the Church of England, the formal church. So remember that. There are state churches at this time. There's not this uh, American idea uh, of separation of church of state. That hasn't happened yet. So Jefferson hasn't written his letter to the Baptists of Virginia saying, hey, I don't think government should um, uh, promote one religion over another, nor should they do anything uh, to mandate religion or a state church. That hasn't happened yet. So just remember that. However, there are some people in England that are beginning to be convicted that they are being forced to worship um, not according to their conscience, which is according to the Bible. So this is a gentleman in the late 1560s by the name of Robert Brown um, who decided to break away completely from the Church of England. Uh, His early followers are called, catch this, Brownists. So the Brownists are named after Robert Brown. Um, and ultimately, we refer to them as separatists in history. They believed in the authority of the local congregation, not uh, the authority of a larger church like the Church of England or the Roman Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church in Germany, the German states, I should say. Um, he, they wanted to break away from the church, unlike the Puritans. Of course, these churches were illegal in Elizabethan England, and also in King James's England. So as pressure mounts, as these congregations, in one particular, but there are several of these in this area, in the north, um, as uh, these congregations meet, they begin to get persecuted and being told they, that these are not legal meetings. So one of these groups from the town of Scrooby, and catch this name, Nottinghamshire, it's wonderful, uh, so Scrooby, Nottinghamshire, it was pastored by John Robinson. They fled England and went to Holland. This was years after attempts to secretly leave England. They finally got there. Um, and at one point, Robinson and other leaders were actually imprisoned. Um, but they ended up fleeing England, and they made it to Holland, also known as the Netherlands. The people there are called the Dutch. Um, there, the Dutch gave these separatists uh, freedom to worship as they pleased and to govern their own church affairs, and it ultimately settled in the town of Leiden, and they lived there for a decade. However, they were not a Dutch people, so they didn't enjoy that. They were English. They loved being English, so they were dissatisfied by the non-English culture in Holland. Also, they, they feared after a decade of living there, their children were being tempted to conform to Dutch culture and language, they had peculiar temptations about acquiring wealth that they wanted to, to get away from. So they eventually, there's a lot to this, and I think I need to wrap this up. You know what? I'm going to leave it there. I feel like I, I, don't, I won't give enough information about this. So let's, we're going to leave it right here in, so these, these are the pilgrims. So just remember this. When we pick up next week, we're going to talk about the pilgrims leaving um, Holland to go to a new land. Uh, so if you want to cheat and read ahead, 
Uh, in your uh, references, I do have a book I would recommend to you. It's William Bradford's Of Plymouth Plantation. I don't know how well this comes across on the screen, but you can read the journals that William Bradford, who ultimately became the second governor of the um, uh, Plymouth Colony near Massachusetts, you can read about things that he um, experienced and what the families there experienced, and we will talk about that next week. So a couple things I wanted to point out to you in conclusion. So next week we'll talk about, uh, just hold that pen so we know that we're going to, these people are about to board the Speedwell and then the Mayflower, and they're going to get to um, New England. But here's a couple things we need to consider here. Uh, we need to think about the fact that God is always preserving his church. So God is currently building his church. In history, he built his church, and he is going to build his church. In the glory of the Lord, in the glory of the Lord, he has preserved his church. So praise the Lord for that. And God always uses faithful people to accomplish this goal. Um, sinners, yes, but people that are striving to honor the Lord with their lives. Imperfect people. The only perfect person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, so that's, that's where we are. I want, to, I want you to think about those things, and then next week we'll spend some more time talking about the Plymouth Colony, the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and then we'll talk about how there are times that within that colony there's some divisions and other colonies spring up. And what does this culture of America end up looking like? So I'll pray for us, and you'll have a few minutes before uh, the worship service starts to log back in. Let's pray. God, we praise you for today. Lord, we praise you for the truth that you are building your church and that you have built your church. Lord, we long to be together, but Lord, we pray that you would help us as we sing and pray um, from our homes. Lord, I pray that, Lord, we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray for Pastor Dan as his message goes forth. Lord, I pray that lives would be changed. Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus as more glorious because of the word proclaimed. Lord, I thank you for this local body of believers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.